So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we again come to you this morning and we're thankful that we have your word that we can study so that we can learn what you have for us to know. We can learn about you and we can understand the way that you are with your people. We can understand ourselves and our great need. And Lord, I pray that uh, this morning that you would help us to see the truth and understand it and know it, help us to receive it. It may be difficult to receive. Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I speak. I want to bring honor to you. I certainly don't want to distract from you or from your word. And so I pray that you'd help me to carefully preach your word. That you would be lifted up and glorified in it. I'm going to give you the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're continuing this morning our series entitled Finding Purpose in the Psalms. And we are approaching the halfway point of book three. Book three is the shortest of the five books of the Psalms. It goes from Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. Uh, And so uh, we are almost halfway through it. But as I said before, the Psalms are not arranged uh, by chance. We've taken note of this at several points along the way. The Psalms in the Psalter were arranged as they are for a purpose. Now, that purpose is not always clear to us. Sometimes we don't really understand why certain Psalms are put together. But sometimes we get clues that show us why a particular Psalm or a series of Psalms might be put together. And I think that we have something like that here with Psalm 79, which is where we are going to be today. Now, uh, just thinking back over the last few weeks and what we have studied, if we went all the way back to Psalm 77, uh, in in Psalm 77, we, we kind of entered into the psalmist's experience there as he as he uh, uh, struggled with despair and anxiety. And he, he described his struggle day and night uh, with feeling as though he was completely disconnected from God. And, and he, he, he cries out to the Lord in that psalm and, and, and felt, even as he was crying out, that it was almost as though the Lord had turned his back. And so the psalmist, we, we discovered there in Psalm 77, that when trying harder doesn't work and praying more doesn't work, that we need to console ourselves, as the psalmist does, in the truth of God's word. And the psalmist, he brings himself back to and roots himself in the wonders that God had done in rescuing his people from Egypt. And as he reflects on what the scriptures say about that, the very last verse of Psalm 77, it closes with this statement. He says, you, speaking of the Lord here, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, when Israel was there at their most vulnerable and weakest point, the psalmist is reflecting back on that from his vantage point. He sees that the Lord raised up godly men to lead the people. Shepherds, he calls them, to guide his flock, Moses and Aaron. Now, how did that go? God raised up Moses and Aaron to shepherd the flock. Anybody 
Can you summarize it in one word, how that went? Anybody? What's that? It didn't. Yeah. Very, very badly. That didn't go well at all. Psalm 78, we looked at that. That took us a few weeks. We looked at that and we saw that those sheep like to bite. And they didn't particularly care to follow their shepherds. All through those years in the wilderness, they complained and they murmured about Moses and about Aaron, these these shepherds that God had raised up. These were God's choice shepherds. And generation after generation failed to follow God with a sincere heart. First, we read about the fathers that came out of Egypt and they refused to enter the land and their lives were wasted in the desert. Then their sons grew up eating manna each day, drinking water from the rock. And their sons challenged God to prove himself over and over. And they brought judgment and death on themselves. Their children grew up in the land of Canaan. And they dwelled in cities that they did not build. And they ate from vines and from fruit trees that they did not plant. And yet, they followed the worthless idols of the land. Again and again, God's chosen people of Israel proved that their hearts were not right and their spirits were not faithful. But even Psalm 78 ends with a note of hopefulness. Because at the end of Psalm 78, we read about a man, David, whom the Lord raised up. And we're told that he took him from the sheepfold and he made him the shepherd over his people. You see the common theme here from Psalm 77 at the end. Moses and Aaron, shepherds to guide the people. And here's David, the shepherd over the people. And the last verse of Psalm 78 reads this way. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and he guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Finally, At the end of Psalm 78, Israel has a shepherd after God's own heart. A man who would lead them like Moses had. Surely the choice of David to be king over Israel would lead to a golden age of blessing and faithfulness among God's people. But as the years turned into decades and the decades turned into centuries... The line of David, the kings that came from his own body who sat on his throne following him. That line proved to be no more faithful than their fathers who had died in the wilderness. And after somewhere around 400 years or so, the Lord was forced to cut off the throne of David from Jerusalem. Now we call that the Babylonian captivity. When the land of Judah was overrun by the Chaldeans and the city of Jerusalem was left in ruins, the very temple of Yahweh himself was desecrated and destroyed. The great stone walls that surrounded the city were, were, were burned to the ground. Those Israelites who were not killed by the enemy's swords either died of starvation in the siege Or they were taken captive and scattered throughout the Babylonian realm. Only a small fraction of people remained in the land. And they were generally the ones nobody cared about. The dregs 
of society, if you will. Among them, apparently, the author of Psalm 79. And he begins his lament by recounting what has happened to them. Let's look at Psalm 79, verse 1 through 4. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. These opening verses of the psalm really present us with the first kind of major point or the first major uh, uh, element of the psalm. I've, I've, I've entitled it this way, very simply, Yahweh's property was defiled. That's really the thrust of these verses. It's all about the Lord God who owns this land and these people. These are His possessions and they have been corrupted and destroyed. Notice how the psalmist appeals to God in these first two verses. He calls it, uh, he calls it your inheritance, your holy temple, your servants, and your saints. All of it belonged to God. The inheritance that he speaks there in verse 1 was the land of Canaan. This was the land that he had promised to give to Abraham and to his descendants forever. The temple, of course, was there in Jerusalem. It was, if you remember, the Mount Zion which he loved. If you look back just a couple of verses at Psalm 78 and verse 69. We see this tremendous contrast. Mount Zion which he loved. And at the end of verse 1, it is Jerusalem that has been laid in heaps. What happened? What a change. What a contrast. God had chosen that city to be his dwelling place, to be holy unto the Lord. And yet the enemies of Israel, these pagan Babylonians, they didn't just conquer the land and the city. That would have been enough. They rushed into the most holy place. The place in the temple where even the priests of Israel did not dare to go, but only the high priest. And only once a year would he go into that room. These unclean Gentiles had marched right in. They had stripped the sanctuary of all of its precious and holy things. All the gold, the silver, the precious stones, the bronze, everything of any value they had stripped out and taken for themselves and for their king. And as bad as the treatment of the temple was and the city of Jerusalem, what mattered even more was the people. These were not just any people. Notice how he describes them there in verse 2. These were God's servants and his saints. They were God's servants. You know, like David at the end of Psalm 78 and verse 70. David, his servant whom he chose. And these were his saints. That word saint there means uh, faithful ones or loyal ones. 
It's not the same word that's used sometimes of saints when we, when we talk about them being holy. The New Testament talks about saints in that way and being holy ones. That's not the, the word here. It means faithful. Those who have been loyal. These people who have loved God and have loyally obeyed Him and followed Him. They have kept His commandments. They have remembered His works. By the way, they are a contrast to all those people that we read about in Psalm 78, generation after generation, who forgot his works. These were ones who had been faithful. These were ones who remembered his works. These were ones who had taught their children to fear the Lord, just as their fathers had taught them. You see, Psalm 79, the whole psalm is written from the perspective of the believing Israelite. Now, after studying Psalm 78 for the last three weeks, you might wonder, is there any, if there are any of those, I mean, could there be any believing Israelites? We read about these generation after generation that, 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 that served idols and questioned God and doubted and all of these things. But, well, and sometimes I guess it's, it's the way that some people feel like you know, after they've had a bad experience in a church, they wonder if there's actually any real Christians, people who actually believe the Bible and live it. They've seen so many hypocrites, they just can't imagine there's any faithful ones left. Well, there weren't a whole lot of faithful ones left. But, they weren't the majority, but there have always been some men and some women who loved God and served him. You remember what God told Elijah when Elijah was discouraged and felt like he was the only one left. And, and the Lord said, no, 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 Elijah, there's still 7,000 men in Israel who are faithful to me. Now that may not seem like a lot, but it's certainly a whole lot more than one. Elijah, you're not alone. There's a remnant of faithful ones. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 11, verse 5. He says, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul says, Israel as a people have rejected Christ, their Messiah, but there are some who have believed. And Paul says, I am an example, he says. I am a Jew. I am, if I was a Pharisee, I am of the tribe of, of, of uh, Benjamin. And he goes through the whole list and everything. But he says, I've trusted in Christ. I'm proof that there is someone left. They haven't all been unfaithful. There's always some whom God has chosen who believe and are faithful. And in the psalmist day, this was the day of captivity. He had seen what happened to those faithful men and women. He'd seen them struck down. He says here that he's seen their bodies cast aside like so much garbage. Their blood poured out like water all around Jerusalem. So many of them had been killed. And so few of them had been left behind that their bodies couldn't even be buried before the wild beasts tore them apart. This this was like a final insult the desecration of their bodies, not even being able to bury them properly. Even in death, these faithful ones were defiled as their bodies were left as food for scavengers. When you think about that, it's no wonder that the city of Jerusalem and its surroundings became a place of reproach and scorn. I just, I just try to imagine the smell as thousands, maybe tens of thousands of bodies 
were lying unburied, being picked apart by the wild animals and left to rot in the hot desert sun. Anyone with any sense would avoid that place. By the way, you may not have caught this when Edward read in Ezekiel 26, but if you, caught, if, you, if you get a chance to go back and look at the opening verses, the reason that the Lord proclaims such a striking judgment on Tyre is that they mocked his people in the day of their calamity. That's what he says there. They laughed and they, they reproached and scorned. The psalmist says here in verse 4, we have become a reproach to our neighbors. So providentially, the Ezekiel 26 reading is not disconnected from Psalm 79 at all. It's an illustration of God's anger at those who mocked and scorned and reproached his people. And as I say, on one hand, it's understandable that Israel's neighbors would deem her a disgrace. The city is lying in ruins. It's a smoldering heap. Her people are scattered across the hills. Their bodies food for the beasts. The smell alone would have caused most people to avoid it and consider it with contempt. But there's something more that's suggested here by the idea of reproach, and that's important. See, back in Psalm 78 and verse 66, it was the Lord who beat back his enemies and put them to a perpetual reproach. That was God's doing when he arose from his apparent sleep and came to his people's aid. He was talking about God striking down the Philistines and raising up the the Israelites under Saul and then under David to, to take charge there over their enemies. And it said that he made their enemies a perpetual reproach. But again, how the tables have turned. But you've got to understand that from, the, from the, the perspective of Israel's neighbors who do not believe in the Lord, right, from the perspective of Israel's neighbors, the problem here was that, that Israel finally faced an enemy that was just too great for the Lord to defeat. That the mighty armies of Babylon had come in, and because they were so great and powerful, they laid waste to the land. In the minds of Israel's neighbors, this is proof that these foolish Israelites who'd been trusting in Yahweh had been mistaken. They trusted in the Lord, and what good had it done them? Their cities were destroyed. Their, their homes were ruined. Their children were taken as slaves, and God had done nothing. In fact, God hadn't been able to do nothing. Please understand, I'm speaking here from the perspective of the unbelievers as a fool. That's the reproach that he's talking about here. They looked on the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah and they said, well, it just proves it. Those Israelites and their foolish worshiping of that God, well, they made a mistake. If only they had worshiped the right gods, then they maybe would have survived. Now we continue on. Because the result of that was that the glory of God was despised. Verse 5, he continues, he says, How long, Lord? Yahweh, he uses now the covenant name here. How long, Yahweh? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. 
For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O Lord, or O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. There are two perspectives here in this, in this kind of central passage of the psalm. There's the vantage point of the nations that do not know Yahweh. And then there's the point of view of the psalmist and all those who've trusted in the Lord. And I want to evaluate those two here. From the perspective of the nations, Yahweh is irrelevant. They don't know him. They don't think of him. They don't call on him. They don't fear him. That's why they've devoured Jacob. And he describes that in the in verses 6 and 7. They, they don't fear the Lord. They've devoured Jacob. They've swallowed up God's chosen people. And they've rejoiced even as they've done so. And notice what he says there in verse 10. Where is their God? This is what the nations say of these Israelites who trusted in the Lord. Where is their God? These Jews have trusted in Yahweh. They've rejected all of our gods. They think their God is so special. But where is he when they need him? And you see how the name of the Lord becomes despised. Israel's cities are in ruins. Their people have been shattered. But they themselves are not really at the root of this. It's the Lord. The scorn that's heaped on him. Because he couldn't protect them. Because he couldn't take care of them. And you see how these lost men and women become more and more bold in their proclamations. They begin to mock Israel's God, who in their eyes has proven himself to be completely inept. Again, we, we, we we see this even now in our day all the time. We've seen it very recently. Uh, people mocking the idea of praying for victims of violent uh, crime and natural disasters. If you say, well, I'm praying for you out there and put it in the media or something, they, they go nuts. They say, well, what, you should do something. You don't just pray thoughts and prayers. What does that mean? Do something about it. They act as if prayer is just another form of inaction. But that's nothing more than mocking the God to whom we pray. Because prayer is only in action if you believe that the God whom we pray to can do and will do nothing in response to it. That's the reproach and the scorn of of the Lord that we see in this psalm on the part of these unbelieving nations. What could God possibly do against this great army of Babylon? Nothing. And so Israel lost. And the minds of those who are unbelievers, they scorn and they scoff. They mock those few faithful ones. They mock them for being so foolish 
as to trust in the Lord. Of course, that shouldn't surprise us. We get to the New Testament and we see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And what do they do? The crowd that's there underneath and they mock him. And they say, he trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord save him. If God really is trustworthy, he would save him. He would rescue him from the cross. And no doubt in the minds of those scoffers, when Jesus died and breathed his last breath on that cross, in their hearts it was confirmed, yes, he was a fool, because he trusted in the Lord. Of course, we know there's a whole lot more to that story. We know that he was not a fool at all. In fact, his death was essential. It was the reason for which he came to this earth. All of that to say that here we have the other perspective. As I said, there's the perspective of the unbelievers, but there's also the perspective of the psalmist and those like him who believe and trust the Lord. They know that the Lord has not been absent. They know that Yahweh is not weak and he is not disloyal. Why then, if God is not weak and if he's not disloyal, why has the nation of Babylon been able to come into the land? Why have they been able to defile God's inheritance? Why have they been able to destroy his servants? Why? Well, the psalmist knows why. And he, he reveals it here, even in his own words that he uses here. The reason is that they have sinned and brought judgment on themselves. You've got to notice, first of all, look at what he says in verse 5. The questions that he asks. He doesn't ask God, why did you do this? He doesn't say, God, why are you angry? He knows why the Lord is angry. The why question doesn't come up here because he knows why. Why did this happen? Well, even the last part of verse 5, he, he kind of reveals the why there. There's a word that he uses that's important. It's the word jealousy. Will your jealousy burn like fire? See, the psalmist understood something here. He understood that, that the Lord's anger was a product of his jealousy. And what was it that had stirred up his jealousy? We read about it in Psalm 78 over and over and over again. That his people, the nation that he had chosen from among all of the nations of the earth, that he had delivered from bondage in Egypt, that he had established in the land of Canaan, his people had been unfaithful. His people had worshipped false gods. His people had refused to remember his works. And they had stirred up God's jealousy. Now, jealousy, when it comes to human beings, is often a negative trait. But in the case of God, it is not. God's jealousy is very simply this, that he will not tolerate a rival. He will not tolerate any rival. And yet, the Israelites over and over again, generation after generation had turned to other gods. And therefore his jealousy, his refusal to tolerate a rival 
I, when I try to explain this to people, a lot of times I use the illustration of marriage. Within a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, jealousy is the natural and right response when there is a potential rival. Now, it's inappropriate, generally speaking, for, say, a man to be jealous of a woman whom he's not married to because he has no claim there. But when there is a marriage covenant and there is another party that threatens to be a rival, it ought to spark jealousy in the heart of the one. Because like God, we ought not tolerate a rival within the marriage covenant, within the marriage bond. God refused and, and, and still refuses to tolerate a rival in the hearts of his people. And so his anger burned against them, but it was deserved. They brought it on themselves. That much is clear even from verse 5. The Lord's anger is the fire of his jealousy. The second thing, though, that we need to see is this. They have been suffering, in large part, for the sins of the past generations of Israelites. You can see this in verse 8. He talks here about the former iniquities. For generations, the children of Israel had turned away from God. And though, even though there was always a believing remnant, the majority of the people from one generation to the next had followed their father's footsteps and worshipped and served other gods. Now, we do need to be careful here, and I want to explain this carefully, that we don't misunderstand what he's saying. It's not that God had punished him and his generation, the generation of the captivity. Because their fathers had sinned as though his generation was righteous and their fathers had sinned and therefore God didn't punish the fathers but he punished them. That's not the case. The generation of the captivity was just as wicked and unrighteous and unfaithful as their fathers had been. And the psalmist readily admits that. In verse 9 he speaks about our sins and needing atonement. He acknowledges readily that they are not innocent themselves, but the sins of the previous generations had been building up for generation upon generation. Their consequences had been passed down to their children and their grandchildren and had been continuing to compound. Again, we see the same thing is true today. That the decisions that we make have an impact on our children and our grandchildren. Does that mean that our children and our grandchildren are not responsible for their decisions? No. They still must choose to obey the Lord. But our choices have an impact. Our sins have an impact on the next generation. Again, it doesn't mean your kids aren't responsible for their own lives and decisions. But it does mean that they will be affected to some degree by the choices you've made. And I'll be remiss if I didn't just mention that the, the Old Testament, when it talks about this, in fact, even back in, the, in, the, in Exodus chapter 20, when it speaks about this in the Ten Commandments, it says that there is mercy. There is mercy on those who fear the Lord. 
So we don't have to have this idea of something that some people have this idea of generational curses that get passed on from generation to generation and we're helpless to do anything about them. The, the, The scripture says there is mercy from the Lord. So just because your parents were sinful doesn't guarantee you're going to suffer because of that. But it does mean that there are some obstacles you're going to face, guarantee it. And that happens every generation. My point is this, that the psalmist is saying, listen, our fathers were sinful and wicked. They, generation after generation, they have sinned, and we can't do anything about it. And God, if that's what you base your judgment on, we're toast. But you notice in verses 8 and 9, what he pleads for instead is mercy. That God would choose not to remember the past. But instead, that he would deal with them on the basis of what? Their own goodness? No, no, no. Notice what he says here. Do not remember the former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. Here's the appeal. He isn't saying... God, forget about the past sins and remember how good we are today and just grant us some favor because we're okay today. That's not what he says. He says, Lord, be merciful to us because of who you are. Because you are compassionate. Because you have a strong love. That that word tender mercies there uh, in in verse 8, it really is... It's a, it's a feminine term, and it describes the love of a mother, the passionate love of a mother for her child. And he says, Lord, you have this passionate love for us. Let that be the basis of your interaction with us. Not our past sins. Not the iniquities of the generations that we have piled up, and certainly we have earned this. But Lord, instead of judging us on that basis, allow your mercy your compassion to be your driving force there's no demands here he admits that they have been brought low the israelites had grown proud they had forgotten god but now they have been humiliated and so what do they do they appeal to the god of our salvation he says help us The God who saves. Deliver us and provide an atonement. This is incredibly powerful there in verse 9. The language that he uses. In order to save them. You see this is important too because sometimes people have the idea that God God can just, if he chooses, he can just forgive everybody. As As if God could just say, you know what? You know, there's been a lot of like, you know, a lot of good and bad and, and a lot of things have been done wrong. But I just, I just think, I, you know, I want to give everybody a break. I'm just going to forgive everybody. You know, when I was a teacher, I have students sometimes that would ask for kind of, you know, well, the test was a bad test. Can you just throw it out? You know, just like, let's all go back to zero. You know? and, and there were actually a couple of times where I looked at the test and I went, yeah, you know what? I really didn't do a very good job writing this test and I didn't, it was not fair. And I did give them another test. Okay, let's start over. Let's do another one. Give you a better, uh, you know, better example. But, but that's not what the issue is here. Some people think God can just say, you know, let's just wipe it all out. Just forgive everybody across the board. But the psalmist recognizes that's not possible. It can't be done. The psalmist says, Lord, we 
have sinned. There are our sins. And if you're going to deliver us, if you're going to save us, first you must atone for our sins. Just think about the situation here. The psalmist is writing in. There's no temple. It's gone. Uh, There's no altar on which to offer sacrifices. There's no priests left to offer the sacrifices. They've been decimated too. There's uh, There's no place to offer sacrifices. There's no resources to offer sacrifices. They have nothing with which they can offer a sacrifice to cover for their sins. And that was the prescribed method. Remember the Old Testament, when when you sinned, if you believed God and you believed his word, you would bring the animal to the priest and you would take the animal and the, you know, you'd put your hands on the head of the animal and confess your sins and the priest would would, you know, or the priest would give you the knife and you would slit its throat and drain its blood and then you'd burn it on the altar and all the different, yeah, the gruesomeness of that. But that whole thing was you saying, "Lord, I sinned." And my sin needs to be covered, so I bring the sacrifice, and the sacrifice was the covering for my sins. It was the atonement. For my sins. But now there's no temple, there's no altar, there's no priests to offer the sacrifice. How in the world can you possibly make atonement and cover for their sins? What can the psalmist possibly do? And he realizes the only hope that he has left is if God makes an atonement. Because he can't do it. I think this is incredible. For hundreds of years, the Israelites have offered sacrifices to atone for their sins, believing, because God said it in his word, that if they offered the blood of bulls and goats, that their sins would be covered. But now, that whole system is gone. It's been destroyed. They've come to the end of themselves and their own resources. They simply cry out for mercy from God. This is the place that you and I have to come to. This is the place that we must come to. We have sinned against God. We have rebelled against Him. We've refused to follow His commands. Scripture says all we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to His own way. And what sacrifice can we offer for our sins? What can we give to God that will please Him? What can we give to God that will appease His righteous anger? Any offering that we might make is going to immediately be defiled by the sins that our hands have committed. By the wickedness that our hearts have imagined. By the deceit and the slander that our tongues have spoken. There's nothing that you or that I can do to make it right. So what do we do? Well, put yourself in the, in the shoes of the psalmist. Just like the psalmist, we can cry out to God for mercy. We can plead with Him to forgive our sins. And the reason that we can do that is that the Lord has already made a sacrifice. He has provided an atonement for us. 
He did this by sending his son, Jesus, to earth to die on a cross for our sins. And I don't think that Asaph necessarily had that in view here, or that he fully understood how God would atone for his sins. But we have a privilege of knowing things he didn't know. We know that from before time began, the Lord purposed in himself to send his son as an atonement for sin. So that we could have our sins forgiven and be saved by trusting in him. The psalmist understood that the Lord was at work. His judgment that he had poured out was for the purpose of bringing his people to the point where they would acknowledge their sins. Where they would have nothing left that they could do and therefore all they could do was repent and cry out for mercy from the Lord. Oh, it may have seemed to the nations that Yahweh was weak, that he was unable to protect his people, but in fact what he was doing was he was bringing them down so very low that they might not have any hope in themselves, but would hope only in God. I wouldn't have time to finish the rest of the psalm today. I thought this might happen. But I want to ask you, what about yourself today? Has God brought you low? Has he humbled you? Has he shown you that you are a sinner? That the problems in your life aren't somebody else's fault? But they are in fact signposts that are pointing you to him? Have you seen that there's nothing that you can do to deliver yourself from death and from hell? But that he, the Lord, has already made provision for your salvation. He did it himself. Will you trust in him? Will you trust in him now? There's no, there's no, no point in waiting. There's no hope in waiting. We need to trust in the Lord. As the psalmist, cry out to him and beg him for mercy and forgiveness. Beg him not to remember past sins, but instead to be compassionate. Because of his great love with which he has loved us, he might receive us to be his sons and his daughters because of the work of Jesus Christ. To be forgiven, cleansed, have our sins atoned for that he might save each one of us. I hope that today you trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about the heart of the psalmist here, acknowledging very readily that he and his people have sinned. It's no mistake, it's no accident that these that these devastating things have happened in their life, and he realized that you were, were using this to bring them to that point. The point where they would finally turn to you, they would repent, and they would cry out and say, Lord, we have nothing. We have sinned, and we cannot possibly fix it. We can't make atonement for it ourselves. Lord, please atone for us. And I pray that today, if there's anyone here who has 
realize that they have sinned, that they have rebelled against you, that they have gone their own way and determined to chart their own course, that they're going to be the master, they're going to be in charge of their life. And what they've done is rebelled against their creator. And they have brought themselves under judgment, condemnation. And you can save them, but you cannot save them apart from atonement. Blood had to be shed. Their sins have to be dealt with. And I pray that they would see that Jesus Christ has paid in full the price of their atonement. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in you, who's never turned to you in repentance and faith, I pray that today they would cry out to you. Even now they would cry out for mercy, that you might deliver them, that you might rescue them from death and hell, which they have brought on themselves because of their sin. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.